Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Lamb Science Podcast. On this episode, we will be having a chat with the amazing Barbara Del Castello, who is a PhD student and a master's student at the University of Georgia. We will talk about Barbara's journey to graduate school, how she became the first person at the University of Georgia to combine a PhD in genetics with a master's in international policy, all things science policy, her very cool internship at the White House, and much more. If you would like to learn more, stay tuned. To start us off, um, tell us your name and where you are from. Yeah, I am Barbara Del Costello, and I am originally from this very small town in California called Pacifica. So what do you do currently? So I am actually a PhD candidate in the genetics department at the University of Georgia. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you got to University of Georgia, um, and also tell us a little bit about your undergrad experience. Like, what did you major in? Um, what activities were you involved in on campus? And were you involved in any organization? Yeah, so I actually had always wanted to be a scientist of some sort growing up, and that was a, a big pull for me in high school as well. Uh, but uh, another thing that I also felt really strongly pulled towards was uh, arts and humanities. You know, I loved my English classes and history classes just as much as I, I loved biology. And that played a really big role in what an undergraduate university I went to. I actually ended up going to a small liberal arts college called Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. And the sole reason for that is because I felt like with a liberal arts education, I didn't have to choose too much. I mean, obviously, I did declare a major. Uh, I declared in biology with a minor in anthropology, but it did allow me some freedom and flexibility to take a few other classes that I might not have been able to take at a really large school where I would be more focused on just science classes and kind of buckling down. But it also gave me some opportunities, like uh, I got to uh, work in a lab, uh, not as a kind of researcher, but uh, making the chemicals for the researchers, mm-hmm. making their petri, uh, pouring out the agar in their petri dishes, you know, cleaning out, things like that, which was really cool for me. And eventually I did get to do some research in that lab. It was a lab that was actually studying um, neurodegenerative disorders in the model C. elegans, which are these little tiny, little tiny worms. And uh, <laughs> they're very, very cute and also very hard to see. You have to look at them under a microscope. But um, it was definitely one of those things where I got to do that, but then I also got to do, I had a radio show at the college radio station where I got to talk about you know, nerdy things and being in science and having fun like that. So I really liked that I was able to sit at that crossroads. Oh, cool. And I really like how you mentioned that, you know, you started off in a lab, even though you weren't doing the research, but you were kind of making um, the chemicals and things like that, because I think that... Um, it's really important to get your foot in the door. Um, I think that's a really, really good way to get your foot in the door when you're kind of starting out in the research world. So I really like that you brought that up. You are a PhD student, so now tell us about your research as a PhD student. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that I'm in the genetics department, but uh, I would say that my research is uh, really more specifically in the field of developmental biology, which is 
fairly interdisciplinary. So I work with a lot of cellular biologists, I work with biochemists, immunologists, and other things like that. So my particular uh, study is in two different organs, the thymus, which is part of your immune system. Think of T cells, that's thymus cells, uh, and the parathyroid, which is actually part of your endocrine system. So it secretes a hormone specifically. It only creates one, the parathyroid hormone. And that controls how much calcium is just out in your blood being used to move your muscles and work out and things like that, or how much is stored in your bones. And what's interesting about those two organs is that they actually come from the exact same tissue, which we call the third pharyngeal pouch. It would be like, imagine you gave birth to two perfectly identical twins, but by the time they grew up, they were radically different people in appearance and job profession and just overall personality. I wanna understand how these two went from being the same identical thing to being obviously very, very, very different organs and what influences that change. So I specifically look at the genetic changes. So what genes are they exposed to? What proteins are they exposed to that eventually makes it so that they decide to split apart and form these two vastly different organs? Thanks for telling us about your research. I know that you said you always wanted to be a scientist. So was that from when you were a kid in elementary school you knew? Like you would do science fairs and things like that? Yes, I was, um, and this is something that my family still teases me about, is that I would, uh, apparently when I was three years old, I'd be running around in, you know, tutu, frilly princess dresses <laughs> and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, some adult, you know, maybe an extended family or co-worker or something would approach me and just be like, oh, Barbara, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they or probably had this you know, preconceived notion of, I was going to be like, I want to be a ballerina or I want to be a princess. And I would completely deadpan and look at them and go, I want to be a paleontologist and say it perfectly every single time. And it always managed to floor and stun them, uh, much to the amusement of my parents who knew exactly what I was about to say. Um, because sure, I was wearing the, the pretty tutu dresses, but I was always in the backyard digging up holes because I always assumed that I was going to find something in our backyard. Oh, Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Cause I can just imagine like wearing a tutu and like saying what you want to be and it's like, wait, what? <laughs> um, so what was the PhD application process like for you? And um, how did you know that your current school and program was the best fit for you? And like, were there any deciding factors in, you know, this program has to have X, Y, and Z for me to attend? Yeah, so actually I think I kind of come at this from an interesting perspective because I had originally decided immediately after undergraduate that I was going to go directly into grad school. And I was really lucky to, because being a scholarship student, uh, most times you don't get this kind of opportunity. I got to study abroad in London for a brief amount of time. And I had decided then that I was going to take this chance and I was going to go get a PhD in London. I wanted to go to um, UCL or University of Edinburgh. So I was getting all of these forms and things like that and um, had started the application for at least one of them. And then I actually got a job offer. And that was for a science policy think tank that I had just briefly interned with the summer before I graduated. And that 
made me have to decide which one I wanted to do. Did I want to go to grad school immediately or did I want to kind of jump on this opportunity? And I eventually decided I'm going to take the gap year. I'm going to go do this. And so for about six months, I had a fellowship at a think tank and it was a telecommuting position because I was constantly having to travel to different locations. And that actually gave me a moment to realize, oh, actually, I want to do this. How do I do this? And so I kind of re-edited my criteria and I wanted to stay in the Southeast then because I had just been in Florida and now I'm thinking, well, maybe I want to move to DC. So I immediately kind of closed in on the Southeast so that it would be easier for me to move to DC after I graduated. And I also decided that you know, I wanted to focus in on a specific field. I was really interested in gene expression and epigenetics, so how genes are turned on and off and what controls them. And I really, really wanted to have a female PI. That was the big stick for me because I knew that I kind of needed that environment and I needed to have someone that you know, had gone through this experience of being a woman in science for me and can kind of provide that mentorship. Mm-hmm. And I was really lucky to actually be offered a post-baccalaureate researcher position in what would eventually become my thesis lab. I didn't know that at the time, mm-hmm. but that kind of second half of that gap year. Mm-hmm. So um, I took the positions with uh, Nancy Manley, a really, really amazing, wonderful researcher who has been studying this field of developmental biology for a really long time and is kind of one of the big experts in this field, specifically on the thymus and parathyroid. So I was really, really already kind of dazzled. And so um, having thought that, I then was like, I want to be here. I want to stay at University of Georgia. I'm going to do this. So I actually only applied to the University of Georgia because I was so invested in it at that point because I had been working there for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't... I don't typically recommend that to people, but um, I was kind of in this position where um, I felt like I could really, uh, I could really do it. So, uh, you know, I went through all the traditional kind of PhD process of doing the application. And then I was already on site for interviews, so I didn't have to be kind of shipped in and um, interviewed with a bunch of professors who I'd never met before. Um, I'd really kind of been restricted to just the people that I kind of interacted with in my one building. And a lot of these professors in the department were in completely different buildings and I had never met any of them before, um, which made me a little bit nervous. But um, when I was offered the position, I was so excited and um, I rotated in uh, some labs and did some general rotations. And by the end of it, I approached Nancy and I hadn't been, uh, I did not rotate in her lab because I had already uh, knew what her lab was about and had rotated in three other labs. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I really didn't like those labs as much as I liked working with you. And she was like, oh, well, I kind of assumed you were coming back to me. <laughs> You're going to continue your research, right? I assumed you were, you were just rotating with them to get some new skills. I, I'm sorry for my assumption. I was like, oh, a big weight off my chest. Yes, of course, I want to be in your lab. And uh, it's been that way ever since. Wow. <laughs> wow. I can just imagine. She was like, wait, I thought you were already going to come back. <laughs> she thought I had already signed on with another one of the labs and was like so sad. She was like, I thought, I thought you wanted to be in the genetics department with me. And now I'm hearing that you're in biochemistry. I'm like, no, no, no. 
it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, we found it extremely interesting that you are pursuing a dual degree and working, you know, in the genetics department and um, in international policy. So tell us more about that. Um, how did you think of combining the two fields and what was the process like to combine the two degrees and has it ever been done before at your school? Okay, so this is actually, this is a fairly new thing. So I actually just got my acceptance letter for the master's uh, just last month. So I'm still reveling yeah. in the excitement for it. And uh, what inspired me to do this was I had the immense pleasure of meeting this um, senior woman in, in the science policy field. And I was having this long conversation with her about you know what science policy is and at least to me and what I really wanted out of it and how I was really passionate about the field and you know what her experience was and what her story was and how she got into the field and I remember thinking wow like I wish I could be her and I mentioned offhand that I was thinking that I should take some policy classes because I found that after the kind of different experiences I had in science policy that I, I understood the science, not as much the policy part. And I felt like if I really wanted to be that kind of liaison, that point person between scientists and policymakers, I needed to speak both languages. Otherwise, I'm not a good translator. And she was like no I think that's a really good idea and I was like well I know that my school has some policy degrees and maybe I'll get one of those mm -hmm. and then the conversation kind of diverged there was other people we were all chit-chatting and um, I got up to leave and right before I left for the night she tapped me on the arm and said get that degree mm -hmm. do the policy degree and I was like hey that's it I'm doing it <laughs> so at that point I had zero idea what degree I wanted or what I was hoping to get out of it, or if I just wanted to take some classes and maybe get a certificate or something. So I reached out to a couple of different people in the policy programs and I discovered the international policy degree and that it had already a little bit of a foundation of science in it. Now, specifically, this was nuclear science. So they, the program specifically focuses in on nonproliferation. So reducing the amount of nuclear devices there are in the world that can be used in war. And I was like, well, that's kind of applicable to what I want to do. I want to study science policy and how science can affect policy. This seems like the perfect field for that. And so I sat down with the director of that program and we had like a two hour conversation over coffee. And by the end of it, we were just both so excited because this was something that UGA had actually never done before. So there was a lot of precedent for PhDs to also get MBAs because they want to go into industry or they want to go into science sales or things like that. So they want to have that business background. But no one had ever thought to combine a biology PhD and policy before. And so we had zero idea how to do it. And most of the conversation was, how feasible is this? Does this program work? Is there any overlap at all? And by the end of it, we're like, we need more people here. So we had to get the department head, 
the graduate coordinator for both departments to sit down and just had like little old me kind of sitting in the center like um so I want to do both is there a dual degree program that we can get out of this <laughs> um uh being the uh problem child as as it were <laughs> and by the end of it, it, they walk down, they're like, yeah, this is entirely feasible. You could do this. What, you know, you're nearing the end of your PhD right now. You're already in candidacy. You should be writing soon. Let's try it. We're going to do it. So I became kind of the, uh, the great experiment. And so, of course, that being said, feasibility doesn't mean I'm going to get in. I actually had to reapply to the graduate school and uh, submit everything and get sent off and get approved. Um, and luckily I got in and I'm really excited to do this because it's going to push me to do a lot of things that I hadn't done before as a scientist mm -hmm. and to take a lot of that background that I had and try and push it into new forms and kind of bring that science perspective into this degree. And I'm already having an effect. I'm actually taking a summer class right now and we're talking about different security exports. So how you can prevent countries that want specific things that might do it, you know, need it for nefarious purposes. And I said, well, you know, it's the same in biology too. There's actually this group that controls science equipment to make sure that specific chemicals or biological agents, like think about like smallpox. Um, you often hear that kind of, that sort of dark joke about weaponized smallpox. And you know, that's something that's important to consider. And so I brought that up and my professor had never thought about that. And he was like, it's amazing. And it has the exact same framework. And we had this whole like 10 minute discussion about how you know the sciences might be different and the technologies might be different, but the policies really need to be similar. Right, that's really cool. And I like how you're using you know your background in biology and bringing it to policy and kind of marrying the two in a sense. Um, so now we're going to segue into um, more on the science policy side. And so for listeners who have never heard of science policy before, can you explain what science policy or SciPol is? Yeah, so science policy can just be boiled down to pretty much where or anywhere where science and policy intersect. So it could be you know, something that's very relevant today it, in science policy is the pandemic. So COVID-19 policies are obviously science-based policies, but it can also be things like stuff that's about science. So science funding, how much money does the NSF versus uh, the NIH get? Or education, how are we funding our public schools? How are we funding their science education? Or it could just be policy that has a need for evidence. So, you know, banning the smoking of cigarettes in government buildings because the research shows that cigarettes are not good for your lungs and you can get secondhand smoke. So a lot of those kinds of things are really good examples of how science can inform policy. Wow. I know you talked about it before, um, but like what particular stage of your life did you discover science policy? It's actually a really interesting thing about this is that I had zero idea what science policy was until it kind of stumbled into my life accidentally. I was working in my lab, as I mentioned earlier, as an undergraduate. 
I was, I think I was making some solutions or something like that. I was just kind of in the background, in the back of the lab. I was the only person in. It was a pretty quiet day. And my professor, who I was working for at the time, was in the front of the room and she was reading some papers. And in busts this young professor who had just been hired that year. And she goes, I just found out that our school is is hosting a science policy conference and I'm supposed to be in charge of it and they want me to hire interns. Do you know anyone who might be interested in this? And my professor sitting there typing away and reading her papers, perks up, turns back to me and goes, hey, Barbara, are you doing anything this summer? <laughs> and so, and, you know, and from that point on, it's, you know, ancient history because I then had to spend the rest of the day going, what is this? Googling quick. Uh, you know, I'm over there on my phone kind of quietly typing in, like, what is science policy? What does this mean? And um, I ended up getting that internship. And uh, by the end of my senior year, I was helping host a conference on science policy, specifically food science and food policy. So making sure there's enough food to feed everyone in the world. And um, I fell in love with it. And I went on to go work for that think tank. And I then you know, took a break, went back to science because I was missing the kind of science and bench life and things like that. And it took me a little while to kind of go back and say, no, this is absolutely what I want to do. And I'm going to jump headfirst in. What are you interested in the most about science policy? Yeah, so I think what I'm interested in most is the speed at which science changes and how policy tries to keep up with it. I think science policy has to move faster than what we would typically imagine policy to move at because you know we tend to think of policy as slow and small changes just going over in time and pol and uh, science on the other hand is constantly rapidly at this exponential rate coming out with new things and new data and new theories and new hypotheses and the science policy has the kind of encumbrance of you know, having policymakers who want to make small, you know, continual changes, and but reaching towards the science and trying to capture what is happening at that rapid pace and try and digest it. And I think kind of being at the crux of that is kind of being the hands that kind of hold both of them together and try and pull them closer. So you know, being a scientist, reaching back and trying to pull science policy with you. So I know science policy is a field that many scientists don't really think about or really consider. And why do you think that is? Oof, that's a big one. <laughs> so so uh, I think on the, the basic fundamental level, there is there's one study that's been going around um, a lot recently, which is that STEM students, this study was specifically looking at undergraduates, mm -hmm. are less likely to uh, kind of interact with the government. Specifically, this was looking at voter turnouts in STEM students. Mm -hmm. They are less likely to be politically involved and vote than they are their um, kind of related students in humanities or social sciences or things like that. Mm -hmm. And the 
paper postulates that this is because these students weren't already interested in this and that if they were passionate about policy, they probably went into policy. But I think that inertia really sticks at that point and um, can get worse with academia. Academia has this really terrible thing to it where it, you know, there's this uh, saying that uh, academia is the ivory tower. And so scientists tend to view themselves as objective and they look at things rationally and they pull themselves away from kind of humanity in that sense and that they're kind of in this high and mighty ivory tower and what they're doing doesn't concern the rest of the world. And obviously that's not true. And I think that's why there's been such a big push in recent years, especially with the kind of the boom of social media that communication is so important and that really there needs to be some systematic changes in academia and how it thinks because it's got some very ancient thoughts about this kind of stuff. So there's been this big push for scientists to actively communicate with the public and talk about their research and how it impacts them or what their funding is going to. Um, most universities, especially on the big level, are funded by the public because they're receiving funding from federal agencies like the NIH or NSF. And so it's important to show them what their money's worth and show them how we're you know, bettering humanity or bettering our understanding of the world that we live in, or maybe not even the world we live in, better understanding the universe that we live in. Mm -hmm. And I think that change has made science policy more important too, because it's not only just informing the public, it's also informing policymakers and politicians about why our science is important. And that's going to change a lot of things. I think we're going to see more scientists going out there, maybe even running for office. But right now, it's still kind of new. And scientists are not too sure about it. That's, you know, policymaking, that's kind of squishy. I like data. I don't like words. <laughs> and uh, so there's kind of an inherent fear to it. They're obviously, you know, you, it, it is scary to kind of do something that they're not used to, mm -hmm. but it's so, so important. And so I really, I really like spreading the word about science policy and talking to people about it because if we talk about it more, then we might be able to get more scientists on board and that's only going to do good. It can't do bad. It can only do good. Yeah, I think conversations about it are super, super important. And um, with that being said, um, talking about conversations, what are some misconceptions that you think people have about science policy? Yeah, so there's a couple of them. So I think on this kind of scientist side, mm -hmm. they really think about, you know, oh, it's just about, you know, science and science funding. So, you know, the only policy that really matters to us is that they increased, increased the uh, you know, DOE budget so I can get more money. Um, <laughs> or that, uh, no, that's for the policymakers. Like, I'm a scientist. They can come and ask me questions, but you know, at the end of the day, that's their issue. That's their thing. That's what they've been studying. I study this. Or even kind of more insidious, that is not important. My research is important. I don't need to worry about what the policymakers are thinking. They'll get there eventually. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of that on the science side, but 
As for the public, I don't think there are many misconceptions because it's really not talked about too much. Um, and so I think that's what made kind of the pandemic really interesting in the sense that it brought science policy to the forefront. It was on the news because people were talking about, here's the science and here's what we're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's kind of this misconception that, you know, it's only important in these sorts of scenarios and that it's not an everyday thing. It's more of an emergency thing. But uh, even just basic stuff like how often you should, you know, repave a road because of erosion from wear and tear of tires constantly going over it. That's science. And that's just as equally important. I like that you brought that up because things like the roads, you know, that's not something that people would usually think about that that involves science and that involves policy. So I feel like, you know, science policy, if you really think about it, is in our everyday lives, honestly. Um, so I know you talked about, you know, some reasons why science policy is important and it actually does affect scientists. Can you think of any more? Yeah, so... Science policy is important to scientists, you know, one, again, because of their wallets. That's always going to be important. Mm -hmm. Public funding for science is very important, especially in this day and age. There's been a lot of talk about how U.S. funding for science has stagnated a little bit and is more accounting for inflation rather than expansion. And other countries like China are actually funding at a much higher rate than the U.S. is. So scientists are looking over there and saying, hey, why aren't we getting that? Um, maybe we need to kind of influence the policy on it. But it's also important in the sense that you know, scientists are people too. Right. You know, they, they have children who maybe attend local public schools and their education matters. Or, you know, again, they drive to work. The roads are important. That's evidence-based policy that, you know, there's a lot of data behind that. Or even just, you know, grander things of like, you know, how everything is run on an international level. So we think about, you know, how we trade with other countries or what tools we trade. The U.S. creates a lot of scientific equipment, but it's not the only one. There's countries like Germany who create a lot of scientific equipment, and we need to be able to trade those effectively. And that involves science on how do we get the stuff over effectively? You know, do we take it in a plane? That's a lot of gas, et cetera. Or you know, how we even just get the equipment over in terms of policy, export policy. Um, so you know so much about science policy already, um, and I know you are you know, you just got accepted into your master's program for international policy. Um, did you take any other classes or certifications um, in order to kind of get your knowledge to where it is now about science policy? Yeah, so I, I did. Um, so I was really lucky to do a online course with um, NYU and they do one on science diplomacy. It's run by actually the, uh, I believe the uh, postdoctorate association, if I'm remembering correctly, but they, they give out a certificate at the end if you do the one homework assignment that you get during it, which is to write a policy brief. And so 
you know, you get to see all these different speakers and eventually you write a policy brief on one of the topics those speakers brought up and then you get a certificate at the end, which I think was really important because I actually had zero idea how to read a read or write a policy brief. And um, that's something that you would have to do in science policy if you were a science advisor, is you'd have to read a bunch of scientific papers and then create a brief that you would give off to a policymaker which then they get to quickly scan and get all the important information out of. But I honestly didn't take a lot of classes in science policy. And I think that's kind of the biggest advice I'd give to anyone who's thinking, you know, should I take a course or not? Um, a good chunk of what I understand from science policy, I really just researched, I talked to people, um, I went to different conferences and attended panels on science policy. So when I would go to give a presentation on my research, say like a poster or something like that, and I'd be talking about my research and then I'd see that there was some sort of science policy panel that, were, that was also being given concurrently, I'd go and check that out. And so I'm lucky in that sense that I've been able to kind of reach out to those organizations and attend those conferences. There's so much information online and there are a lot of really good journals that you can get access to and read articles on. Uh, a lot of things, so like uh, Science, which is a really big predominant science journal, regularly online posts about science policy, so you can just read those. And I get a lot of really great information out of those. And eventually, you know, obviously I did decide that I wanted to take classes, but I am doing it more for myself and my understanding than I am to kind of push myself into the science policy career. If I wanted to, I could technically get hired because I'm a scientist. And first and foremost, if you want to be in science policy and do science advisement, you need to be a scientist. So really, you just need to be a scientist with a passion. And if you really want, you can take these extra things for yourself. So I know something that a lot of people would definitely be interested in is your internship in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. and. Um, what stage of your life you completed the internship. Things like, um, how did you find out about it? How did you apply? What was the application process like? And if you can remember how long it took for you when you applied till when you got accepted. Yeah, so I actually applied to that my, I guess that would technically be the year, my first year. So it was the summer after I just completed my first year of graduate school. Um, it wasn't too hard of a process, but I did kind of come at it from an interesting approach, which was that I had attended a conference earlier that year and I had met someone who worked in that office. And I thought that was a really interesting job position. I wanted to learn more. And I had just taken a course in alternative careers in science and uh, you know, something that you know, a lot of graduate schools are starting to offer since you know, most PhDs will not become professors because there's just not that many professor positions. Mm -hmm. um, a skill that I learned from that was the informational interview. And pretty much what you do is you reach out to someone who's in a career that you're interested in and you say, hey, can I ask you some questions about your life and how you got here and you know, what made you choose this career or just basic things like what are the benefits of it? What's your pay? Do you get time off? What's it like having a family while you're in this position? Is that even feasible? 
And so when I found out about him, I just went, I have to talk to you about this. So we, uh, so I got his business card and I scheduled with him and I talked to him maybe a couple weeks later and just sat there and said, okay, tell me more. I need to know what's it like. Uh, I had never heard of the office of science and tech policy for the white house before this. So I was like, please tell me everything. How am I not, how have I not heard about this before? And it was a really, really fun conversation. And probably about a week later, he sent me a link to the internship and said, hey, you know, you seem like you're really interested in getting a job here. We actually have an internship program. This might be interested in, uh, interesting to you. So uh, here it is. The application is due in a couple of months. So I quickly got everything together. I needed, a, you know, my CV and resume, and I needed to write a brief essay on a science policy uh, topic of my choice. At the time, I was still pretty interested in food policy just because I had had a lot of experience with that. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to write about, you know, genetically altered crops and uh, genetically engineered crops and why this is important for feeding countries that might be affected by climate change and drought resistance. And so I wrote this whole thing on this and I think it came out to about like two pages and sent that in, waited a few more weeks, and I heard back that I got into the second phase, which is a phone interview, which I think was the most intimidating part because it was with the, um, at the time, director of uh, the kind of department, not really department, but the director of the office, um, Afua Bruce who was like very top name. When I started looking into the office, her name came up a lot. I was already very dazzled. And, um, and then I found out there was gonna be other people on the call too that were also going to ask me questions. So it was really a panel of people that were going to be talking to me. So I kept calm, you know, just gonna okay, answer all their questions, gonna do this to the best of my capabilities. And they asked me about um, what I wrote about and why I'm interested in this and, why I think I'm a good fit for this, or you know, what are my weaknesses, things like that. And you basic kind of interview questions. It's like the longest couple of weeks of my life after that, <laughs> because I was fairly sure that I did okay, but uh, something I struggle with is imposter syndrome, which is the kind of idea that, you know, I'm not really supposed to be here, I'm not good enough, eventually people are going to kind of find out that I'm a fraud or fake. Um, but it, you know, that's all in your head and that's just, you know, how science has kind of affected women because it really affects women the most. And so I was sitting there like, oh, I didn't get it. I'm not good enough for this. Uh, it's, a, it's okay. I, I don't need a job at the White House. I should focus on my research. I don't need this. And then I got in and I was super excited. And then the hard part came because being a graduate student in this meant that, again, I was going to have to step away from the bench and that was going to be for three months over the summer. I was not going to have any research being done during that time. I was gonna to have to move to DC. So I had to find kind of temporary lodgings for when I was in DC. And I also needed to find funding. So I was really insanely lucky that uh, my department actually will continue funding during an internship because they want to foster that kind of 
you know, expectation of just like, hey, you know, if you want to do an alternative career, you should do an internship and see if you're interested, of course, we'll continue your funding. So I got my reg regular graduate stipend. And then I was also really lucky that I applied and got a grant from within the university to do some summer travel. So that covered my airfare and a little bit of my housing. That I think was the hardest part was, you know, going to my graduate coordinator and saying, hey, I'm going to be gone for three months. Am I still going to be okay? Am I still a student? Am I going to be gone? Does the graduate school accept this? Things like that. So I think that was kind of the most strenuous part was actually the after effect of being like, okay, I got it. Now can I do this? I'm really glad that you brought that up as well, because I think that it's super important that your school supports you. And, you know, if you are interested in other fields and other things that I think, you know, your school, um, the school that you pick for a PhD program should be able to support you and kind of foster you to develop your other ideas. Um, and I think that's really important also when you're thinking about graduate school and your PIs is you need to talk to your potential PIs and just say, hey, like, I'm thinking about going into an alternative career. Are you okay with that? Because some PIs will not actually support those decisions because they only want to bring in students that they're training to go on academia. So I think that's an important question that people need to ask is, will you support me to do this? And it's only a no if you ask. So you need to, you know, make these decisions. Um, you know, kind of consciously. And I wish I had kind of beforehand because, you know, at that point I was so scared that I was going to get no's. Um, it was nice to hear a yes. So what was the most rewarding part of the internship? The most rewarding part? It was, so I think this was easily one of the uh, craziest experiences that I had. So this was, uh, my internship was in 2017 and I was partially working with the U.S. Global Change Research Program, or USGCRP, in their National Coordinating Office, which is located just down the street from the White House in one of the federal buildings there. And so I had spent some of my time in that building working with them on a new thing called the National Climate Assessment, or NCA. This was going to be version number four that was going to be coming out at that time fairly soon. It's out now. But um, they also had a couple of smaller reports that tend to come out a little bit more rapidly that were on specific topics. And one of them is a kind of supplemental to the National Climate Assessment, which more focuses on the science behind it. So it's more geared towards scientists, whereas the NCA is geared towards public uh, and policymakers. And so I was tasked with finding out the similarities and making sure that there were overlapping themes so that when a group came in um, that I was gonna be kind of helping a presentation with, I could show them, look, there's a lot of similarities. Here are the topics that are covered in both. Here are the topics that are covered in either one or the other. And so I had gotten really familiar with that science report. Then one day, probably about 10 at night, I get a frantic email from someone in the office. It leaked to the press. The New York Times had just given us notification that they were publishing it in the next morning's paper. And so the most rewarding part, because at that point I was terrified um, because I had no idea what was going to happen. They were warning us that there might be press at the door. I 
typically you know, interns and like uh, the kind of lower rung younger people are the ones that they tend to target because they know that we might slip up and we don't know what we can and cannot say. So I was already mentally fortifying myself to have to deal with this. Luckily I didn't. But the next day we had on the news and we got to see all of these discussions that were happening and everyone was talking about, oh my gosh, this report, it's saying that we need to change things. We need to talk about this. And so to watch the discussion that came out of it and see how the public interacted with this policy mm -hmm. and interacted with you know this publication really showed me that this was this was important what i was doing was important and while i you know didn't do anything with that report i'm not a climate scientist by any means i was just kind of a lowly intern who was you know, <laughs> reading titles and making sure that you know everything was doing kind of everything was on the up and up and you know not really doing much in the in terms of like dramatic changes or anything to it um i still had read that report and had it in my hands hours before this and watching that change in that discussion really cemented in me that this is what I want to do because I had never seen anything that I'd even remotely worked on, let alone just at that point kind of interacted with kind of lightly cause that much change on a national level. That was your most rewarding part. So what are your top three favorite moments that you have from that internship? Yeah, so I mean, that one is definitely on there. But if I was going to pick three others, um, I was the um, staffer that was chosen to go to a Senate hearing, and it was for the FCC. And um, at the time, they were trying to decide who was going to be um, leading the FCC. And so I, I was sitting there, you know, frantically taking notes, pen and paper, and just trying to, you know, keep up with everything. And um, I got to write up a whole summary, which was then presented to the office. And that office then handed it off to the kind of higher ups, because what that was is that I got to be the kind of summarizer of that event. Mm -hmm. and provide all the different talking points and what was discussed and who asked what so that the higher-ups could know what was going on and what was important and what did I pull away from it and what was kind of the relevant information what should they be thinking about because you know obviously you know they might not have the time to go and sit and watch an entire senate hearing um so it was interesting to see kind of how my work kind of got handed off and probably informed a couple of things about those um, hearings. Uh, another thing that I really liked was that, I think this was one of the most interesting poignant moments for me, was uh, that day I was working in the climate office uh, was uh, when we pulled out of the Paris Accord. Mm -hmm. And I remember the entire office coming together and standing there and watching just a block away from where this was actually occurring, which was in the Rose Garden at the White House, gathering around the TV and watching the, um, the whole you know, presentation, I guess, or the talk on why we were leaving the Paris Accord. And I think watching everyone and watching everyone's reactions to that was really a moving moment. Maybe it's not you know, a happy one, but I think it was one of my favorites because 
it was kind of another reassurance that, you know, what we are doing, it, you know, there are ups and downs in every field. Not every day is going to be a win. Um, but every single one of those people that was in that room walked out of there with, you know, extra reassurance that they were here for this. We were going to do something about this. We were here to be the scientists. We're here to speak for the scientists and, um, they were much more kind of affirmed in their beliefs. So I think that was really, really a poignant moment for me. And then I think the other one that I really liked was kind of a multitude of moments, which was that with the internship, we got to have a lot of days off and, um, we got to do, I guess they weren't really days off, but we weren't in the office. We were off doing things where we were maybe meeting with speakers and having a discussion. Um, we got to tour uh, a couple of different places, including the White House. Um, we got to, uh, at least if you were working with the climate office, there was one day where we went to the kind of Na the NASA headquarters office in DC and um, meet with a bunch of scientists who worked in all different federal agencies. And they were having a whole discussion about what was gonna be in the next paper and what was important for the future and what things do we need to include. So there's all these different roundtable discussions that were happening and we kind of got to walk around and uh, sit in and moderate some of them, which was really, really interesting. Oh, that's so cool. This was such a really cool internship, it sounds like. Um, so what tips do you have for someone that's interested in um, applying to this internship? I, again, I, I kind of came at this with an interesting approach with the informational interview. If this is a job that you're interested in, feel free to, you know, a lot of these, the, uh, the kind of office members have their emails publicly available. It never hurts to email them. Mm -hmm. So feel free to reach out and ask them about it and see if you're interested in the job. And, you know, I'm available on Instagram and everything's like that. So if people want to reach out to me and talk to me about it, I'm happy to do so or point them in the directions of things. But I think talking to people and making those connections are always going to be important. That being said, basics for the kind of applying for the internship, you don't need anything super special, just maybe a little bit of experience in science policy beforehand. Uh, and it's open to undergraduates in uh, science policy, or that are interested in science policy, specifically STEM majors. Um, it's open to law students as well. There was a lot of law students that were there when I was there. And it's also open to graduate students. I was actually the only graduate student in my class, but a lot of the younger students that were STEM students did go on to go into a master's program, either immediately after they were doing this in between or um, soon after. Um, so a lot of different backgrounds, as long as you feel comfortable with science policy or science law, you should be, you know, feel free to apply. Okay, um, thanks for that advice. So uh, we saw that you made a visit to Capitol Hill to discuss science policy with some of our nation's lawmakers. How did that opportunity come about? Yeah, so that was actually part of a organized congressional visit day. So that was with uh, several different organizations. I was specifically there with the American Institute of Biological Sciences. I had received their Emerging Public Policy Leadership Award, 
which they give out two of every year and pretty much means that they pay for my trip to DC. Um, and I get to take some classes there with the organization. So I went to the AIBS headquarters uh, maybe a week before and took some classes on how to communicate to policymakers, how to communicate with the public, what is science policy and why does it matter? And then specifically the day before, we sat down and had some discussions about what the asks were. So the big ask for our congressional visit day was that we wanted an increase to the NIH and NSF budgets to not just be matched to inflation, but rather actually increase it so we can fund more science. And so we spent an entire day talking about science funding and getting educated in that. And we weren't the only organization there. Uh, there was an entomology organization and a couple of others. And we all came in on one day and we, we were organized by regions. So I was specifically with the Southeastern cohort. And so pretty much what I did was I went around to my scheduled meetings with different members of the Senate and Congress and talk to them or their offices about science funding. So that's kind of how I came into that or what it was, but how I actually found out about this was through a earlier thing that I had done, which was a local congressional visit day. Now, if you don't already know this, but uh, if you are a constituent of your district, your congressperson spends a certain amount of time in your district speak with their constituents and what you can do is you can schedule a meeting with your congressperson and sit down and talk to them about whatever you want so the AIBS and other organizations will also do local ones and they'll help organize that for you and walk you through the steps of how you do that and provide maybe a little bit of money for gas money if you need to drive a little bit of a ways so I had attended a local one with my congressperson, Jody Heiss, and went with a couple of other students from my university who are interested in science policy. We were given a bunch of information on science funding, and we were told, yeah, just here's what you want to talk about. Here's what we're, we're asking for. You tell them that you're here on behalf of AIBS. And I really, really enjoyed that situation because I had never interacted with a policymaker face-to-face -face before, mm -hmm. which was really nerve-wracking. Um, <laughs> and when I found out that they did this nationally once a year, not long after that, I said, absolutely, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. But how can I? Which is how I actually applied for their Emerging Public Policy Leadership Award, which was you know, the scholarship that got me there. So I applied for that first and then scheduled myself for the congressional visit day. So they give out two of those every year, and then the other organizations also will kind of fund some additional positions. There's also honorable mentions. So I think there was about uh, five of us that were there on behalf of this kind of award, um, and two of us had won the award. Um, so that is how I was able to get there. Oh, cool. So I know you said that the meetings with the lawmakers were nerve-wracking. Um, how else were they like? I know you said that, um, you know, you had to take, or you were kind of briefed a bit beforehand. Um, so how else did you prepare for those meetings? Yeah, so 
I was given a stack of brochures that I kept in a briefcase on me that were pretty much a summarization of our talking points that we could leave with the office. So typically with uh, when you're having a congressional visit, when you're visiting a specific office, you are more likely than not talking to a member of the office staff or legislative staff rather than the actual senator or congressperson. Now, this might be disappointing to some, but this is actually a really, really good thing because these are the people that write the policy and write the reports mm -hmm. that get handed off to the congressperson. So this is where kind of the nitty gritty nuts and bolts happens. So you really do want to talk to these people. And while it's really, really nice to also talk to the Congress people and senators, which I did get several chances to, that was more, you know, making yourself known, shaking hands and briefly bringing it up before you move on to kind of how you want this to be done with the staff. Mm -hmm. So we had, we were booked pretty much back to back. We were constantly running up and down the halls almost. I made the uh, best decision, which was to bring a pair of flats Mm -hmm. that I would run around in and then right before our meeting I would switch into heels um, so that it would be a little bit more presentable um, when I would talk to the staff. Highly recommended if you're doing this bring a pair of shoes to run in. Um, so I had the brochures with me. I was insanely nervous before each one of these but I was also really excited just because uh, I had never done anything that was so directly uh, faced towards changing policy and enacting policy. I informed things, advised on things, but this was hardcore. This is a policy we want. Can you do this? Yes or no. So I would go in, shake hands. We would exchange business cards. This is pretty uh, normal when you're talking to congressional offices that you hand them your business card and they immediately hand you yours. That's how you get introduced almost. Mm -hmm. So you have their information right in front of you. You know what their position is and you know their name. And so once the formalities are kind of done, you sit down and go, okay, what are you here for? We went through our talking points. So I had like a little prepared set of bullet points and a little speech that I would give. And I had a team member who was with me. And this was actually really good because I was funded by NIH funding and I still am funded by NIH funding. And uh, my colleague who was also a UGA student was funded by the NSF. And so we each got to talk about how funding was important to us, what our research was, why we need more, what we could do with more money, what you know the whole US science system could do with more money. And then we would hand them our brochure at the very end as kind of a reminder of our talking points, shake hands and run to the next one. <laughs> so it was really a, a discussion. So I didn't have a PowerPoint or anything like that. I would go through my little spiel, talk about what was important, and then I would answer questions about specific things. You know, sometimes you might get a question that you weren't super sure about, mm -hmm. um, which was always a little bit scary just because, oh no, they didn't teach me that. Um, but a lot of it they really just want your informed opinions on mm -hmm. because they're not scientists. They don't know what funding really means. And so what better way than to learn from an expert, someone who actually directly interacts with science funding. So as long as you kind of come in with that sort of, you know, idea in your head that you're the person that's the expert, they're going to ask you questions, they're not interrogating you, 
They're not, they're not there to disparage you. They're there to listen and they're there to ask questions and you're there to answer them and make them understand why this is important. And as long as you kind of come in with that mentality, you're going to be fine. <laughs> cool. So um, if someone listening is interested in science policy, where would you tell them to start? If you have a passion for this, or if you're even a little bit interested in this, it's really easy to start right now. And I think the biggest thing that you can do, go onto Twitter, go to hashtag, hashtag SciPol. So S-C-I-P-O-L. And you will find so much information on there from discussions to resources to job opportunities. If someone's looking for a science policy analyst, they're going to post it there. You're going to see so much information on it. It's just going to inundate you. But if you're looking for something a little bit more direct, something that you can kind of use as a starting point, I would highly recommend looking up the National Science Policy Network or NSPN. It's a super great resource and has provided a lot of the information that has really affected my graduate student understanding of science policy. So they were actually the group that helped fund a UGA organization that uh, was started not by me, but um, by a friend of mine who was also really interested in science policy and I still help with. And they were the ones who informed us about the congressional visit days. And that's how we were able to organize that. So they'll have a whole bunch of information about how to get into science policy but also local organizations that you can maybe become a member of. Or if your university or college or school doesn't have one, you can start one and inform the National Science Policy Network and they might be able to help you with starting that, maybe through either funding or resources, et cetera. And you can start your own science policy club, which highly recommend. It's a lot of fun and it's always great to see like-minded people come together in that, especially in a field where you can feel very isolated especially in academia, being kind of the odd one out. I, I wear proudly my name of being science policy girl at UGA, but you know, that can also be kind of a lonely experience if you're like, I, I am the science policy girl, not the science girl who also does policy. Um, it was really great to meet up with like-minded people and talk about that. If you are a grad student or, or even an undergraduate student, and you kind of have an idea about what field you want to go into. Another great one, look up the name of your field and then organization. So genetics organization, biochemistry organization. And you're going to find that there's a bunch of these large organizations that maybe host science conferences or host science policy events or things like that. See if they have anything on science policy on their pages. And if you aren't that lucky, the AAAS or the American Association for the Advancement of Science is like the preeminent science policy go-to place. They own the science magazine that I mentioned earlier. So that's where a lot of their science policy information comes from is their interaction as an organization with policymakers. And uh, they also have um, a, a really long history of being in that. Or you, know, you can also look up the National Academy of Sciences, another really important science policy organization. If you want an internship, go ahead. But if you can't afford that or that's not kind of in the books, an internship is really not needed. Start your local clubs. 
meet locally in your district with your congressperson, have those meetings. Or it is an election year, work for a local campaign and be the science policy person. You might not even need to be working on the national level for the election, but you can work for a local election like uh, a congressperson, your mayor, things like that. And just, hey, I'm a scientist and I would like to help out any way I can. You'll be amazed at how excited they'll be about hearing that. So it's really easy to start small, start local, and you can just kind of grow up from there. Well, I really like that you mentioned that because sometimes I think it is important just to get your foot in the door and kind of offer, you know, I'm a scientist. Do you need help with anything? I'd be happy to help. And I think that people really respond well to those kind of um, requests and that's a really good way to get experience. Um, so what skills do you think um, somebody should have or look to have if they're interested in science policy? Yeah, so there's a couple of different levels here. So if you're looking to just get into kind of the, the policy side of it and maybe you, you don't want to get a PhD or maybe you just want to get a master's I think the important skill that you need is the ability to read science literature and summarize the key points. Read science journals, read a bunch of them from a bunch of different fields and see if you can understand them. Science writing is notoriously hard to read sometimes. And scientists, again, are not the best communicators sometimes. And so having that ability to read a paper and maybe read it out of order, read the results first in the abstract, and understanding what to do there, super important. If you're a PhD, typically you're gonna have that skill already because it's important to kind of growing your education in that way. Mm. A thing that everyone, everyone needs, and I highly recommend this, learn how to write a policy brief because it is radically different than anything you have ever written before. It's not like any essay you had to write in college. It's not like any science paper you've ever had to write. It's a very different format. And there's a lot of really good resources out there on how to do that. There's a couple of different classes if you want to have that. Again, keep track of on Twitter. You'll see those pop up all the time. But there's also just some really good how-tos online that you can look at or read examples of. Something that might be important to you maybe would also be public speaking. Mm -hmm. how, how assured are you to be able to speak to a room of people? A huge room of people, small room of people, how are how able are you to even talk one-on-one -on -one with them someone when you're the expert and they're asking you a bunch of questions because that's also very stressful sometimes. Mm -hmm. So work on your public speaking if you can and work on communicating your own research. I think that's a perfect place to start. At any point, if you're working in a lab, talk to your mom, talk to your grandfather, talk to your neighbor, talk to your best friend, explain your research to them. And if they don't understand something, you're doing it wrong. So you have to make sure that you can meet them on their level because otherwise you're going to have a hard time pulling down research that you don't know mm -hmm. and making it easier to, for people to understand. So start with your own and then work your way out. Cool. So You've given us so much information on science policy, and we really appreciate that. So before we wrap up, um, after you complete grad school and your master's and everything, what do you see yourself doing in the future? 
So uh, so I'm definitely nearing the end of my PhD. So I've got maybe a a year and a half or so to go. And I've got two years for my uh, master's. Mm -hmm. So I should be walking in two years. So 2022, I see you. Um, (laughs) So I'm starting to get that question a lot more. Uh, What am I going to do? So I think uh, for the immediate future, I, I am kind of conflicted on whether or not I want to stay on the bench a little bit longer and do a postdoctorate in another lab, maybe a government lab, just so I can kind of get that feel and understand how those labs work. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very interested in just getting a fellowship in science policy. There's a really predominant one with the AAAS. It's it's like the preeminent (laughs) fellowship out there. So uh, fingers crossed if I did apply, I'd, I'd hopefully get that. So I think I'd want to do something like that where I could get a little bit more, jump in, and and then figure out from there. But I see myself going into that field no matter what. So it's whether or not I want to get a little bit more science before jumping in and being a science advisor or whether or not I just want to jump in because I'm tired of being in the lab. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really great talking to you. No problem.